It's by accepting the complexity of it all that you can actually find a really simple solution. And I'd love uh, the education system, uh, you know, to stimulate students to accept this complexity and to use systems thinking um, instead of just trying to figure out the quickest way possible, the simplest solution. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood. This is the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. On this show, we'll be talking about creativity topics and how they apply to the field of education. We'll be speaking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and digging deeper into new and varying perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel a more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers and parents with knowledge they can use at home or in the classroom. So let's begin. Today, we welcome to the show Pete Griamonprez, who is the co-founder and managing director of My Machine, a for-purpose nonprofit working globally. My Machine has a unique and multi-award-winning methodology that unites students in primary, secondary, and higher education to co-create dream machines invented by children. Based in Belgium, Pete and his team have grown My Machine into 13 countries. My Machine has been widely recognized and endorsed by the likes of the United Nations, Harvard, the Lego Foundation, and Fast Company, to name a few. My Machine was recently inducted into the renowned 100 Hall of Fame. Pete is the author of the book, What is Your Dream Machine? How Children Change Education Worldwide, with a foreword written by Sir Ken Robinson. He is the founder and co-founder of different industry crossover networks in his native country. And prior to My Machine, he worked in higher education for 15 years, establishing research collaborations with companies around the world. Welcome to the show, Pete. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great honor. I want to start with this idea around My Machine. Where did you come up with this idea? Well, my machine was founded by three people. So Jan and Philip, my co-founders and myself. And we started with the idea to ask children in primary class, if we could build a dream machine for you, what would that machine do? And anything goes actually, you know, it's just as long as the child really, really wants it. And then we decided that for step number two, we want to we want to engage with university students and they help out in translating that idea into a concept. And in step number three, we reach out to vocational or technical secondary level students and they help out in uh, creating a working prototype. So in one school year or academic year, we go from idea to concept to working prototype. And we do this with uh, lots of schools at the same time. That sounds like so much fun. So you start my machine with an open-ended question, which is what is your dream machine? So why is it called a dream machine and why not just like a dream? What's that importance of that open-ended nature of the dream machine? Well, there's two important elements to that. One is that um, if you would ask somebody or a child, uh, what is your dream the answer might be, you know, my dream is to uh, be able to talk about my emotions with my peers, with other children and my parents and so on. Whilst if you ask what is your dream machine, immediately you 
make sure that those children think about the next step. It's not just a dream, but it's also thinking about, and, you know, how can I accomplish that idea? How can I make, you know, how can I make sure that this idea comes to life? So asking them to create a dream machine, the answer there might be, I want a machine that helps me, uh, you know, to talk about my emotions. And then we can start a conversation with that child and asking like, okay, and how does this machine work? Uh, you know, what does it do? How do you, how do you, what's the, you know, the human machine interface? How does it look like? And so on. So the question, what is your dream machine dives deeper? It goes deeper into, and it goes into the how as well. And not just, uh, it, it doesn't just remain a dream. And the other thing about the, the fact that the, the question is open-ended is extremely important to us because if it would not be open-ended, it would again be us, the adults, saying to the children what we think is important instead of listening to them what they feel or decide what is important at that specific moment in their lives. So sometimes you have people saying like, you know, I want to be part with my class in my machine, but this year round we're, you know, working in the theme of climate action or whatever it is. So we would like them to come up with ideas on climate action. And for us, that is a no-go because, as I said, it would be us telling the children that climate action is important instead of listening to them. Gotcha. So it's completely student-led. It is really student-led. Yes, absolutely. I'm interested in kind of like the progression as, as, you know, it goes from, from early years to kind of older children. I'm just curious how does the kind of evolution of the idea progress as it kind of makes its way up the grade levels per se? Well, it starts with the children thinking about what their dream machine could be, or, you know, some children have different ideas as, as you know, multiple ideas. And they make a drawing and they think about how it should look like, if it's small or big, how it should function. And this is, by the way, I, I, I didn't mention this before, the step one, step two, step three in my machine are not divided steps. So the university students are there um, in the primary class when the ideation happens. So they have, can have this conversation with their customer because the children here are their customer. Um, and by the way, they are a brutally honest customer. So that's, it's just so magnificent. You can learn so much from that type of customer. And so they need to engage with that customer and understand what this customer is asking for. And then the university students walk away from the primary class, go to the university and they start conceptualizing. And what we do is with my machine, we challenge those university students, not just to come up with one potential, you know, solution or design, but we actually challenge them to come up with multiple potential designs. Uh, sometimes three, uh, sometimes four, five, it even happens that we, you know, we challenge them to come up with 10 different designs. And then we simulate a meeting as if we were a production company where, you know, it's not an exam. It's a meeting where we invite stakeholders of my machine. So those could be, of course, university professors are there. The, for example, teachers from the vocational secondary level schools are there because they are, will be engaged in step number three, the production of the prototype. Um, you know, other people would be there and we as my machine coordinators would be there. And we have an open discussion on those different concepts. Uh, you know, where we discuss the pros and cons of each of those concepts. And then collectively, 
together with the university students, we decide, for example, that their concept number three or their concept number seven would be, you know, the one that we should go for. And then the university students know that this specific concept that has been collectively chosen, uh, that's the one that they need to elaborate a lot further. And in that elaboration, they will, you know, create feedback loops to the, to the customers, to the primary school children, so that they can give feedback on, uh, you know, the, the bigger picture or even details about, the, the, you know, the concept, like which colors they want to use or some functionalities. And then there is a sort of a, what we call a work in progress event, which is uh, hosted at the university. The primary school children then visit the university. For most of them, this is the first time in their life that they can actually visit the university. And some of those children call this the school of inventors. And they then can give some final feedback to the, uh, to the university students. And this will probably be the first time that these primary school children will then see that they can, they were actually not the only class joining, that there were actually also other classes joining uh, from other primary schools, perhaps even from other cities. And so they are able to give feedback, not just on their own dream machine that's being built, but also on the other dream machines that are being built from the other classes in the other, uh, from the other cities even. And and then this progresses into step number three, the, the making of an actual prototype. Again, the primary school teachers are invited to this vocational technical secondary school so that they can actually see how a production of a prototype is actually taking place. How, how do woodworking machines look like or metalworking machines or rapid prototyping machines? Uh, they can actually even help out in producing some parts of the dream machine. Um, and then in the end, we run an exhibition where we showcase all of the results, uh, you know, starting from the original drawing of the child, you know, the scale models built by university students, and of course, the actual working prototype. And this exhibition is a please do touch exhibition. Uh, and so they really need to test these uh, prototypes. And so that's the whole progression of from idea to, uh, to you know, to the prototypes. That just sounds like so much fun. I want to try it myself. <laughs> so I'm curious, how many times have you done this? And what are some of the sort of things that you expect from these youngsters who have these dream machines? What are some of the things that typically come up? And what are some things that surprised you? I can't even think about it. It's, it, it makes me, it, it frightens me. You know, we started my machine, I think, um, something like 13 or 14 years ago already. We started growing my machine outside of Belgium in 2015. So that's more recent. But what we, you know, we've, we've seen thousands and thousands of ideas popping up. You know, some children take the opportunity to invent something personal. Uh, for others, it's something they want to invent to help out a family member. Uh, sometimes there's ideas about their community and there's children that, do, that come up with ideas to tackle one of the United Nations development goals or global issues. So it really ranges from a very personal to a global scope, uh, you know, if you, because of the open-ended question that we pose to them at, at the beginning of our methodology. And so children come up with great ideas in terms of uh, 
uh, helpful machines or fun machines or fantasy machines. They invent, for example, the homework making machine because they don't like to do homework themselves. So they want a machine to do it for them, the clean up my room machine, the, you know, talk about emotions machine. You know, we've learned through my machine that there is a worldwide problem, which is caused by bunk beds, that immediately you have a discussion going on who gets to sleep on top. And so these children invented a rotating bunk bed. So you never have to discuss anymore who gets to sleep on top because it keeps on rotating. At some point, you're down below and the other, you know, some seconds later, you're on top. And so that worldwide problem has has now been solved by the, these children. Or to jump to the moon machine or, you know, I could go on and, and, and um, you know, forever, actually. So it's it's fantastic. But what we do see is something that, in the legacy of Sir Ken Robinson, something that he showed us, uh, which is that as we grow old, we tend to lose the ability to think creative. Uh, and Sir Ken Robinson even said we are educated out of it. But what we see is that there's a tipping point at the age of, in general, I would say the age of nine or 10. We see that children below the age of nine, tip, not all of them, but typically would come up with ideas that, that are really imaginative. For example, the jump to the moon machine. And then starting at the age of nine or 10, then those young people would, not all of them again, but typically would inv invent more practical machines like the clean up my room machine or the do everything machine or the homework making machine. So we do see that the, the pure fantasy is, you know, that as, as they reach the age of 10, somehow is a little bit lost and it becomes more practical. That's a, a, a very much a trend that we see. That last point's a very fascinating thing to to note because it's it's uh, around a time in which other studies have uh, noted changes in 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 a child's relationship with the school and the classroom environment. Um, I'm just curious: Do you adapt your program to try and continue to foster that fantasy piece, or do you kind of continue to just run with with the changes that are, that are obviously occurring in that age group? We're not interfering, so we keep true to our, you know, the the mission that we've set for ourselves. Be, you know, meaning that it's open ended, and we listen to the child. What's important at that moment in their life? So, no, we're not. It's not that we ask older children then to come up with something different or remind them that they can also in, invent something very. With, with a lot of fantasy, no, we don't do that. We just go along with the ride. We go along with what they want to see build. You know, when you hit that age of 10, you start to realize that you feel vulnerable in front of your peers. And that's really when the peers piece comes out. And you don't want to share a crazy and wild idea like, let's come up with a machine that's going to go to the moon because you don't want anyone to laugh at you, right? So it, it, I think it's really interesting. Like, how do we, how could we build that in to say middle school curriculum to allow students to take a risk and come up with those sort of silly and wild ideas and for others to accept those. So I think it's about teaching kids about openness and risk-taking, even when it means that, you know, they might feel a little bit vulnerable. You know, Cindy, I want to pick up on on that point because just a few weeks ago, um, I was conducting an ideation session in, in one of my classes and it was a design thinking unit. And 
you know, why I said to myself is I really want to try and like use this week to generate some some new and very different ideas in response to the problem. And I got to a point where I said, everyone share with me a most wild and wacky idea. The groups shared with me their most wild and wacky idea. And I said, these aren't wild and wacky ideas. These are either ideas that, that already exist or they're ideas that we probably could do. I said, someone take, let's take five, 10 minutes to come up with a really wild and wacky idea. And so we had to keep sharing wild and wacky ideas. And I had to keep encouraging them to go more and more extreme. But once they suddenly went and had an extreme idea, I started to notice a a few different changes or observe a few different changes. One, they all started to giggle and laugh a little bit more, generating more ideas than they had generated before. And at the very end, obviously, what we could then do in the next session was we took the wild and wacky ideas and were able to start kind of doing the bullseye technique where you try and get them to say, right, well, this is a wild and wacky idea. Now, you can't necessarily spray paint the moon and use the moon as an advertising technique. But what might we do? I don't know if if you've got kind of like any thoughts around this, Pete, but this idea of kind of like utilizing wild and wacky ideas and fantasy is almost like a tool to try and generate new and very different ideas. I mean, for example, you know, could, is, it, is it helpful if a, if a six-year-old is working alongside a 12-year-old just to try and assist them in producing more wild and wacky ideas? Well, uh, we see that happening every day uh, where indeed because of the wild idea sometimes that those young, those six and seven year olds still have is that they also challenge the university students when they need to translate that into a concept. They're also challenged by that. And I'll give you an example. I, I remember this university student like uh, I think three years back, something like that. And his name is Victor in uh, Slovakia. And um, and he said, uh, well, I learned so much from the My Machine assignment, but the most pivotal moment for me was when I returned to the primary class and I said to those children, you know what, we have a problem. And this, the problem is called gravity. And um, the children were you know, responding to Victor, this university student that said, you know, Victor, this gravity thing, that's your issue. Deal with it. And he said, um, that was just so fantastic. I was again being the adult coming up with uh, reasons why something could not work instead of the children saying to to him, actually, like, you know, if you come to us, you come, you come with solutions and you don't come with reasons why something will not work. And in my opinion, that's a strong uh, message and it's a strong context referring to what you both said, uh, Matthew and Cindy, is that, um, you know, it's, it, this is about the core of my machine, why we are doing it. And it's, a, it's about showing young people. And with young people, again, I mean primary, university and secondary level students, is that having ideas is important and fun that you should never be afraid to share your idea, even if it sounds challenging to somebody else. Don't be afraid to share it. And we actually show them that you can bring any idea to life and that you can do it by collaborating, by respecting each other's talents, by being persistent when necessary, by being resilient when necessary. And no matter where life takes them, if they want to become a dancer, a photographer, an architect, an engineer, a startup entrepreneur, it all starts with having the creative confidence that your ideas matter, that your ideas actually can make a difference. 
And we see this as an adult. I'm not sure if you've been in this situation where, for example, as an adult um, in your office or something where you were working, you were the one expressing an idea. And then probably within 30 seconds, you would get all the reasons why your idea won't work. Somebody will say the deadline, somebody will say budget, somebody else will say legislation, somebody else will say, will say I don't think there's a market uh, for this kind of product or, or, you know, or service. So you get all the reasons why your idea will not work. What happens is that in that typical setting is that if this happens a second time, is that almost all people turn silent because, you know, you don't want to be labeled as the one, you know, you know, Pete, that's the one with all these silly ideas that we as a company don't know what to do with. And so you don't want to get that label. And what happens is you turn silent. And this is a context in which lots of organizations and companies and the society at large is losing is shutting down avenues of lots of great new ideas that could pop up and actually, you know, have potential for new, new or renewing uh, products and services and, and processes. You know, uh, it's about lots of organizations and companies that are not creating a context in which ideas are allowed to grow, in which ideas are allowed to grow. And that goes back to, you know, the wild ideas being probably being judged within two seconds, like, well, that's a wild idea. There's nothing we can do about that. For example, the jump to the moon machine. We're not saying to the children, you know, you know, it's impossible to jump to the moon. That's a stupid idea. Give us another idea. No, we don't do that. We say, okay, if you want to build a jump to the moon machine, let's do this. And what you need to do is not judge that idea, but actually looking, giving that idea the time to grow and looking for an angle in which you can actually do this. And of course, the solution for that kind of uh, ideas is that you you use the imagination of the customer, the child, uh, as if it is jumping to the moon. And then all of a sudden, instead of panicking, the university students then understand, okay, now there's lots of uh, possibilities that, that I can come up with for creating a concept for this jump to the moon machine. And it's because I didn't judge the idea within three seconds. How do teachers who are listening to the podcast get involved with the work that you're doing with my machine? Are they able to do it on their own? Are they able to download things from your website? Well, there's two things we offer. One is that we grow our nonprofit organization by looking for collaborations in different countries. Um, it's through franchising. So we look for a partner that is uh, interested in setting up this typical My Machine collaboration between primary, university, and secondary level in their own region or country. And so we, ha- as we speak, we have uh, 13 My Machine chapters up and running. So if you are a teacher in uh, in a country where we are we we already have a chapter up and running of course we the best thing you can do is connect to that local chapter um and participate uh, through that chapter in my machine if you are a teacher who is working outside the context of our existing chapters then there's a second thing we do and we call this uh, my machine dreams drop what it is it's an online world map uh, on our website where we invite actually anybody, not just children, but adults alike to invent your dream machine and upload it to the world map. And if you do it, it uploads it to your specific location on the world map. And once a year, we run a call for participation um, specifically for primary school teachers around the world to join with their class and they can run the ideation. So step number one, uh, using some 
uh, do's and don'ts and templates that we offer them for free and they can um, do the ideation and then the teacher, the primary school teacher uploads those dream machine ideas to this world map. And then we pick some of those ideas and we connect them uh, with um, university students in different countries and they produce a proof of concept. So this My Machine Dreams drop is, uh, if you will, it's sort of like a My Machine light. It's step one and step two. It's not step number three, but it allows us to also engage with uh, especially primary school um, teachers who are uh, outside of the scope of our existing chapters uh, in, in, uh, in the different countries where we're active. That sounds fantastic. Thank you for that information, because I know there's going to be a lot of teachers checking it out, and I love the options to get involved in different ways. Um, before we go into our final question, I would love to know, Pete, what would your dream machine be? <laughs> to be honest, I've got a few, but the, ones, the one that pops up regularly with me is a machine to make colorful shoes for men. Because I do think if you look at shoes for men, they are either black or brown. And there's not a, lot of, not a lot of creativity going on there. So, And I love to have some different types of shoes. Yeah. So Pete, we wrap up every show with the question, what three tips would you provide to educators to help them bring creativity into the classroom? Or if you'd like to focus on like bringing your concept of my machine into the classroom, we'd love to hear any ideas that you have. Honestly, I feel a bit, um, let's say, overwhelmed by the question because of, because we are so fortunate to collaborate with educators in so many countries, seeing that they are doing such a great work and great effort. And some of them really um, are amazingly creative, um, doing wonderful things in their classroom. So I'm not really sure whether or not... Um, I'm in a place where I could give some advice to educators, but it makes me think about perhaps, you know, some of my personal thoughts, which is one I, I do admire, and it's inside the My Machine model, uh, you know, an open-ended approach. So if you, if you want, whatever it is that you want to do with uh, your students, why not challenge yourself as an educator and see, you know, can I do this in an, with an open-ended approach instead of just, you know, me deciding, let's talk about this or this or that um, in the classroom. So challenge yourself as, could it be open-ended? The other thing is, if there's, you know, we see a lot of organizations out there that if they want to do something and, you know, do something wonderful, lots of them are using the technique of creating a competition. And, you know, this is also part of the My Machine model, which, you know, My Machine is not a competition. We are not looking for the best tree machine, whatever that would be, or something. No, we just want all students involved to be, all of them should be winners. All of them, you know, we want all of them to learn through the process. And so I would challenge lots of educators, and not just educators, but also other organizations out there, like, why not take a different road instead of the competition road? It's not that we are against competition, but there's enough competition out there. Um, and so it, I think I would put that as a challenge as well. And the final thing would probably be that I would love us all involved in education and even outside of education to 
embrace what I call systems thinking, which is, uh, you know, explaining to ourselves and to, and as educators also to our students that the world we live in is complicated. And that is very much okay. And that is how it should be because nature is complicated because education is complicated. You know, the car manufacturing industry is complicated. Healthcare is complicated, you know, and all of these uh, sectors, all of these industries are complicated in themselves. And they are also, you know, uh, collaborating with each other, interfering with each other. And all of these industries together, we call society. So, it's just a given that our society is complicated and that's okay. And, you know, to navigate in that complicated context, you, you need to do systems thinking, which means that you, uh, you allow yourself to understand the system you're part of. And that helps you in finding simple solutions because it's not because you accept complexity that you, it means that you need to go through complex solutions. No, but it's by accepting the complexity of it all that you can actually find a really simple solution. And I'd love uh, the education system, uh, you know, to stimulate students to accept this complexity and to use systems thinking um, instead of just trying to figure out the, the you know the in the quickest way possible the simplest solution, uh, which is oftentimes a very wrong solution. So um, it's it's accepting complexity, and that's your you know you can find a solution uh, be, because of that. Well, thank you so much, Pete, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and your perspective, and we love the work that you're doing with My Machine. So this concludes this episode of the Feeling Creativity in Education podcast. If you have questions about this episode or past or future episodes, you can reach out to us at questions at feelingcreativitypodcast.com. So thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood. This podcast was produced by Creativity and Education and in partnership with dadsforcreativity.com. Our editor is Sina Yousafzadeh.